Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Our top story this week is the March 15th Ides of March presidential primaries, which pushed Marco Rubio out of the race, gave John Kasich what's almost certainly false hope, and on the Democratic side made a Bernie Sanders nomination about as likely as a 16 seed winning the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Uh, more on that later. Bernie, obviously, not, not the tournament. Uh, we'll start by looking at the state of the Republican contest, where with victories in four of the five states that voted on March 15th, Donald Trump now has a commanding lead with 673 delegates to Ted Cruz's 410. With Rubio leaving the race after getting smoked by Trump in Rubio's home state of Florida, that leaves John Kasich as the third and final contestant for the GOP nomination, trailing Trump and Cruz considerably with just 143 delegates. Now, what this boils down to is that while Trump is the only one who can't win enough delegates to capture a majority before the convention, or while he can, sorry, it's going to be a near thing. Depending on which delegate math calculations you look at, he's either just barely on track to hit 1237, or he should just barely miss getting the majority he needs. Uh, However you look at it, with, uh, with a number of big delegate states coming up late in the contest, particularly California with 172, uh, I think it's fair to say we might be in for a really big, exciting finish, wouldn't you say, Jay? I'd agree. So that uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, this with, last week or so, without a doubt. So, what, what's your what's your take of what with what happened on March fifteenth? At least for the well, Democrat, I mean, for the Republicans. Sorry, as a uh, you know, again, if some folks were watching the website, you got or the uh, Facebook page. Uh, that was our first attempt at actual live coverage of an event. Um, at the uh, Kasich uh, victory party. Right. Uh, and I guess the the romantic in me would say it is uh, much like the Ides of March, like those original Republican heroes uh, standing up to uh, slay a tyrant. Uh, John Kasich uh, performed that role as a Cassius or Brutus, as you will. Um, Brutus, I guess, appropriately. Brutus Buckeye, you know, our, our <laughs> Ohio State mascot. Um, but... Uh, you know, so I, I'm, I'm again. I, I will acknowledge my my own uh, kind of warm fuzzy feelings, and I suppose my analytical skills might be a little bit um, uh, overcome by that. But um, look, Trump still won most of of those uh, primaries. Uh, what the uh, Kasich victory meant was there's a little bit of breathing room. There's a <clears throat> there's a chance uh, that. Uh, he will be stopped and uh, it'll go to a, a broker convention. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, as much as Kasich says he's going to win, uh, I think he realizes he's not going to, to win the nomination outright. The, the math just isn't there. Uh, and I, I would also say that uh, he, he does believe, though, if it comes to a broker convention, uh, I think he would have a good chance being that most polls show him beating Hillary Clinton uh, over and above the uh, either Cruz or Trump. So, I mean, I think that's, that's where that, you know, what, what the plan is. Um, and of course, in these kind of things, you, you can't really say um, I'm running just to sort of try to stop him and, and hope that I, you know, get it at the convention. Right. Uh, you have to sort of predict victory. <laughs> so 
But, um, I, th- but I think even Kasich's people, you know, admit that the math the math isn't there. And they, the thing that interests me is, as you pointed out, in all the polls that I've general election polls that I've seen to this point, the only Republican who beats a Democrat is John Kasich beating Hillary Clinton. And and uh, now those polls that's you know way in the future and they're not worth a whole heck of a lot at this point. Sure. But, but that's something. But the other thing that I wonder about is, you know, there are a number of Republicans, most notably, most recently, Mitt Romney, the last person who actually was able to get a majority of the uh, delegates to vote for him, said a vote for Kasich is a vote for Trumpism, basically. And there are a number of Republicans who are saying, hey, I, we don't like Ted Cruz particularly, but John Kasich is doing the party a disservice. And it sounds to me like the thinking here is that even if John Kasich thinks he might be able to come into convention and somehow come out as the come out as the nominee, given the fact that he's not going to have that many delegates, the idea that a third place, distant third place candidate is actually going to be the choice of the convention, it seems like that the party leader is saying that's probably not going to happen. I don't know. What do you think? Well, uh, as far as the party elite. Um... I guess that depends on who you talk to and, and uh, how they, you know, what, what they call themselves. But um, no, I guess the, the concern is that uh, Kasich would essentially be a spoiler for Cruz and would somehow allow Trump to get uh, more delegates. I, I think you have to look at that on a state by state basis. Uh, I, I think there are some states where Kasich would be better poised uh, to stop Trump than Cruz would. Uh, there are some states where it, it could almost be a tag team thing, and as long as Kasich isn't pulling votes from Cruz, uh, there, you know there, it might be uh, wise to have them both on the ballot. Um, it's it's hard to say. Uh, and again, I, I'm I'm not deep enough in the weeds yet, and as far as what goes on in some of those western states. Uh, uh, to, to make a prediction on it. And there's not much polling um, yet. So I think what polling yeah. we have is pretty uh, – like, for instance, Arizona is the next big primary to come up, and that's a winner-take-all. But the only the latest polls I've seen are before March 15th, so they still have Rubio votes in there and so forth. So we really don't know at this point exactly what, what the polls say because there just aren't enough of them. Right. And I would say that there is an overriding – feeling uh, amongst the, the GOP. And I, I, I this is just from what I read. I, I don't have any um, special insight here. But uh, that Trump cannot be the nominee. Uh, that that's just the um, situation. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, um, if, if he is, it will be the essentially the end of the party. Uh, it will uh, throw senatorial races into to disarray. It'll it'll uh, make for significant losses in the House uh, and and just a general branding problem like we talked about last week. So Maybe not the end of the party. I think, I think when we talk about the establishment, and again, it's it's a little bit of a weird thing that we're at this point, and Ted Cruz is essentially the establishment candidate. Uh, but uh, I, I think they will move heaven and earth to see that Trump is not the nominee. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know if really if they're going to have you know much of an ability to do that. Just given, again, given how the math looks, that you know Trump has been very difficult to predict, certainly in a lot of these contests. And and, and like I said, depending on whose calculations you look at, he might come into the convention with the majority that he needs. In which case, it's pretty much game over. And I don't really see it as the end of the party. And I think I've you know I've mentioned this before that. <laughs> 
you could you could make an argument that a crushing defeat for Trump and the loss of the Senate would be about the best thing that could happen to to burn out some of this craziness on the fringe of the fringe of the Republican Party that would kind of get it back to the sort of Republican Party that that I at one point was a you know was a proud member of and wow you know, we'd, we'd bring you back if uh, if we run trump and he loses we get you back i don't know i can't i can't make that promise that's for sure but but certainly it would be i'd be a lot more likely to vote for a republican for republicans if more of them were like uh john casey really the more, traditional stripes yeah. uh, as opposed to this. um you know i guess there's there's some thought in that but i, I you know that's sort of a weird you know, look, let's put it this way: if, if you're a Republican, that that seems to be sort of a, a really backwards-looking strategy of uh, let's let's allow the the worst guy we can imagine to run uh, to kind of oh, yeah, get it yeah. out of our system. Yeah, it's kind of a glass half full sort of thing. I'm being you know very optimistic it's, for it's the sort party. of like let's lose all the games for the rest of the season because we'll get a really some really great draft yes, picks next year. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's. I mean that's just a tough, uh, tough pill to swallow, and and I think you have to you do what you can to to raise the flag. If nothing else, even if Trump is the nominee, then to establish some leadership for the next time, to establish that this is what we stand for, and it's not Trumpism. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. You know, my my concern would be if if there is, uh, I mean, the word collaborationist is already already being thrown around in Republican right. circles uh, for those who are signing on with Trump, but. Uh, uh, you know, my concern is if you have too many of those people, um, you know, then and, and Trump loses badly, he takes down a whole lot of people with him. So right. uh, it's it's really not a good scenario in in any sense, other than um, you know these these what we'll call old school Republicans sort of stand up for uh, what they believe in, or or at least against what Trump preaches. And 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 this is something I want to touch on just briefly. Um, you know the the uh, there will be riots if uh, I'm not elect if I'm not the nominee. Uh, uh, Trump speech. Yeah. Um, I guess it wasn't a speech; it was a radio interview. Uh, but you know that's that is something that's that is really beyond the pale. Um, yeah. And and I you know I think how do you how do you be remain a responsible party if you don't go after that sort of thing um, pretty harshly and, oh, yeah. and say look this is this is not what we stand for. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of Trump stuff. I mean, he says so much stuff and so much of it is so goofy. You can sort of write it off as, as we've said this before to kind of the crazy uncle. Um, but when you start saying things like that, uh, in a situation where you just had violence in Chicago and there's been, been confrontation, uh, that's, that's just not responsible. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I, I can't, I can't see how any, um, you know, it's 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 strange that uh, if anything, it's almost there's a little bit of a new Americanism uh, being forged, kind of a new bipartisanship. Uh, I found common cause with with all these sort of Democrat friends <laughs> who are sort of the anybody but Trump. Right. Um, so he's united. Uh, which, he is a uniter, not a divider. Yeah, you know, and that's that's he's a, absolutely. So you know. There, there's another thing that it, it talks about, you know, if if he's not the nominee, there are going to be riots. And, you know, there's I think it's a reasonable concern, that idea that if he comes into the convention with close to 
with very close to the number of delegates he needs, you know, you certainly can raise a reasonable concern about, well, is this a democratic process and so forth? And, you know, a lot depends on how things go at the convention, assuming it's a, it's a contested convention. And one proposal that I thought was really interesting that, that so, someone uh, put forward earlier this week was the idea of what's called an instant runoff vote at the convention. I, I, are you familiar with, with that, Jay? No, no. Well, well, let me tell you, it's kind of interesting how it would work. Basically, I imagine it would it would involve having to change the rules, though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, how it would work instead of having multiple ballots, where you have all that kind of wheeling dealing between ballots, if you know no one gets right. a majority on the first ballot, what you would do is ask all the delegates to rank order their top, say, three candidates, basically. And obviously their first candidate would have to be the person they're pledged to. And how it works is that you, the person who has the lowest number of votes, they're automatically kicked out and their number, those number two choices go to, are, you know, are distributed. And so basically you have one ballot where everyone's closest to the top choice gets picked. It's, it's pretty much the most democratic process you can design, basically, as opposed to having these multiple ballots and so forth. And some yeah. people think that a process like that would probably be the fairest, though the, one of the problems is trying to explain it to people. I don't know that Trump voters would feel that any process that would allow for him to not get the nomination would be democratic. But I think something like this absolutely would work and would be a good idea if it comes to that. Wow. That's, that sounds to me sort of like political scientists who have too much time on their hands. Um, I mean, I think, I think the, the process that's in place now, the multiple votes, uh, wheeling and dealing, um, you know, you can call me an elitist, but I like that process. You are an elitist. Yeah, absolutely. I am. <clears throat> I am. And, and proud of it. You, you used to call me an elitist like 20 some years ago. That's true. Uh, even I believe you you've been an elitist. elitist. You have a long and storied history of elitism. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess the the trouble, and this is just a philosophical thing, is and and you seem to agree with me on this in the past, <clears throat> is that you know should party nominations necessarily be a democratic process? Uh, it's it's kind of like, and I, I thought about this over the week that it, it's like you're running a restaurant, and you know you certainly would like to attract as many diners to your restaurant as you can. Um, but, you know, you get to pick what's on the menu. It's your restaurant. Right. And, and and the GOP diner, I mean, what we've been serving up for years is is free trade, um, free market capitalism, uh, and uh, uh, fairly uh, internationalist-looking uh, foreign policy in sort of fits and starts. Um, we sort of take that off the menu and then keep putting it back on. Right. Um, but, but the point is the diners don't just get to vote – as to what's on the menu. Uh, they can't come into your pizza joint and say, okay, now we're, we're doing uh, sushi. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I think that's, okay. I think yeah. that's, that's no. the thing. I mean, and you can say, well, maybe it would attract more people. Maybe it wouldn't. Um, and certainly there's, there's an interest that you want to people have, you know, be there to have what they want. But at the, at the end, if you, you surrender too much of, of what your core policy beliefs are, you sort of cease to become a, a party and, and your only, you know, policy, your only stand at that point is, well, we'd rather be in charge than these guys be in charge. And, and I think that's sort of a shallow way of, of looking at things. Um, I like it. So I, so I'm, I'm okay with the, the, the elitism sort of, uh, 
you know, making a wheeling and dealing and sure. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Donald Trump is the sushi of the Republican Party's pizza joint. I'll have to keep that. In yeah. Mind. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. There, there was something else that I thought was was pretty interesting that came out of this most recent round of of uh, primary elections. There was a, a former communications uh, staffer for George W. Bush who uh, had a uh, who tweeted uh, after the elections were over, saying, "What essentially happened today is that Hillary Clinton was elected president and." Now we have eight months of hyperventilating before it's official. And boy, that pretty much, I think that crystallizes my view in 140 characters or less. Now, I know you're a little more doubtful of that, but I think uh, when, when all said and done, that's that's what we're going to be looking at. I, I have to think that's the most likely scenario yeah. at this point. And certainly the prediction um, markets and everything else would suggest. So of course, it's, you know, there's still a long ways to go and we don't want to right. call things And, and prediction markets are always based on what we know right now yeah, and not based on, on things that might happen. So it's an evolving situation. But if, if you were to ask me today, what is the most likely, who is the most likely to be the next president? I'd say it's probably Hillary yeah. based on what we know. Yeah. Um, something else, and this just goes to, you know, this is a little, maybe a little off, off topic, but you know, the Republican party has been tearing itself apart and there've been things that some stuff written and, and someone who I usually like a whole lot, Peggy Noonan uh, wrote a, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, just a visceral reaction. Sorry. Couldn't even get a I, – I, that's for the, the best recommendation I can get from <laughs> um, But, uh, you know, had written a, a piece saying that uh, regardless, the Trump phenomenon indicates that there is a massive failure by the, the GOP establishment. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking about this. And in the one term, yes, she's right. Uh, but in, in, on another level, I'm like, what, what else – what else could have been done? What else? Uh, and and I'm, I'm throwing this out there to Republican and conservative listeners. Um, I think I think look look Romney was it was a bad choice, but that was a choice we made four some years ago. Um, I don't think it was a bad a choice. choice either. I don't think Romney was oh. such a bad choice. Was so bad. Well, that the ancient history, but okay, another. But I, I think I see what you're the, saying. The, you know, the, the idea being that that um, he was he was someone who was viewed as very much a moderate, and, and I think that's a very characterization of him. Uh, who would not excite a conservative base, who would not get them out there. The idea was that Barack Obama would excite enough of the conservative base to to uh, to motivate them. I think the problem, um, uh, the, the fundamental problem with the Republicans is you got the the inmates running the asylum here. Um, so I, I think that's. But, but see, from 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 what you read, most of the the the, the criticism exact is exactly the opposite. Uh, that the inmates aren't being allowed to run the asylum, and if they did, uh, we'd have. Uh, you know, much, much stronger candidates. And, and I, I personally disagree with that. Mm -hmm, I mean, would I like to have, have seen a stronger, um, uh, stronger candidate, both in terms of ideology and in terms of just candidate performance than Mitt Romney uh, last time out? Sure. Um, But, but who was it? Uh, You know, I I I don't think there was somewhere out there who was someone out there who was, you know, kept out of the process. And, And likewise, uh, congressional Republicans, uh, you know, gosh, in the House, we've repealed Obamacare how many times now? Yeah, fifty um, something. Yeah, they're they're doing they're doing their best. Uh, Mitch McConnell has vowed no hearings. Uh, he's doing his best, and I, I, I guess I'm just at a loss to those folks who say the establishment is failing. Um, well, what what else can you know? Well, would, would, I, would someone expect of the Republican Party? What else can be done that isn't being done? Well, I, I see what you're saying, but I think the argument is 
that certainly the the establishment candidates spent a whole lot of time uh, avoiding any overt criticism of Trump because it uh, seemed like at least from the media accounts they were scared or they were afraid that he would that he would strike back and it would they couldn't handle it or something I mean look at the look at the Koch brothers you know decided well we're not there's nothing in this and you know I think what we see is a pattern of these individual self-interested actors who are thinking a lot more about their specific uh, futures than they are about the future of the party. And I get that. So yes, they could have done more, but I think it would have been as they saw it to their own detriment. And they, they say, well, uh, more and more is the case these days is that the, it, the party isn't the thing. The party is simply a vehicle for my, for me advancing my own specific self-interest. And that's, you well, know, that's, that's nothing particularly new. No, but but back in the day, the party had a lot more control over that sort of thing. And we're living, obviously, in a very different political world than we were even, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So, so yeah, I guess in a way I see your point. But I think that one thing that could have been done is more – more could have been focused on uh, attacking and disavowing Trump early, but everyone is so enthralled to these the, these wackadoodle nuts on the on the extremes that they want to get to win the primary that you know that that they lose sight of no, what think, being a Republican. I, I think you're, I think really you're misreading that. I think okay. you're I think you're misreading that. Um, the my sense is that the the consensus among most Republicans and the consensus among you and me back in the, the summer when this started with, with Trump was that, look, Trump was going to collapse of his own weight, uh, that he would just eventually do something so monumentally stupid, uh, like, you know, demand building a wall and Mexico would pay for it or, or talk right. about beating right. people up yep. or, yep. or call for riots. But he would at some point do something so monumentally stupid uh, and that, uh, you know, most conservatives would realize, look, he's not really conservative. Uh, he's just sort of uh, he's just sort of Donald Trump, and so the the strategy was position yourself to be in the best second place for when Trump collapsed uh, to be there. Um, and Fair that was the wrong yep. call. Fair enough. And I you're think right. that was the strategy rather than trying to appeal to Trump voters. You're right. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I think, and so I would agree with you there. I think though that there was a little bit too much waiting after the point where people realized that wasn't the case and that Trump could say essentially everything. Though, you know, in fairness, hindsight being 2020, yeah, maybe I am expecting a little bit too much. So, so I Well, you know, the other yeah. the other thing that could have been done, uh, hindsight being 2020 is uh folks could have sort of gotten together earlier and we wouldn't have had this uh Jeb Bush sucking all the money out of the, you know, all the oxygen out of the room as far as money goes. Um you wouldn't have had uh, all these, you know, Jeb Bush being a, a fundamentally sort of weak candidate, and I, I mean no, not that as, as a personal slam against him, uh, more just the the name, the marquee matchup, uh, another Bush Clinton, that that just wasn't going to work. It just wasn't going to be his year, and um, I, you know that that brought in the you know cast of seventeen some folks yeah. and the splintering that allowed Trump to get more upfront notoriety. So. Yeah, better, better control, better. You know, if everybody had had a, a big meeting um, at some time uh, last fall, last spring, and said we have to come together, and had come together then, as opposed to trying to come together now, that would have made a difference. Yeah, but unfortunately, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah, not that, a, that's not a yeah. that's not a philosophical thing. That's a strategic. No, yeah, thing. yeah, absolutely. Yes, the, the strategy could have been better. So, well, you know, let's. Uh, how about we move on to the Democrats? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, on that side, of course, Bernie Sanders 
did not repeat his Michigan miracle win uh, in any of last week's contests, right? Hillary won four of the five primaries and tied Sanders and delegates in the fifth. And so if you look only at the pledge delegate totals, things really kind of seem still within reach for Sanders. Clinton's at 1139 and Sanders is at 835 and they need 2383 for the nomination. But You know, that's really more or less a mirage because of superdelegates, those 20 or so percent of all Democratic Party delegates who can vote for whoever they want. And at this point, 467 of them have come out in favor of Clinton to only 26 for Sanders. And so when you factor those votes in, Clinton's got 1606, essentially two-thirds of the way, a little bit more than two-thirds of the way to the nomination to only 851 to Sanders. So what do you think, Jay? Is that – I mean – can we pretty much just call this one after after I the think 15th? we can? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, Sanders in in some respects isn't really running for the presidency. Uh, I think he is running for an idea. He's running to to take the uh, Democrat Party to the left. Um, he is sort of like, and if you think about it, there's, there's even a weird resemblance. Um, like he's is like a, a the anti Barry Goldwater. <laughs> Um, you know, it's sort of like Barry Goldwater without a haircut. You know I what I mean? That's, it, yeah. that sort of, um, but no, he's, he's running on an ideological mission, uh, to, to pull the party to the left, uh, for the future. Uh, I think he's certainly smart enough and, uh, he can, he can do the numbers. Um, uh, so he, he knows Despite he, he what his campaign run. says. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. you're, you're I mean, right. again, let's, I mean, come on people. Let's, let's be honest. You can't run a campaign and say, Yes, I'm going to lose. I'm going to continue to lose. I mean, they're, you know, look, how many, how many sporting events do you, you know, do you watch and, and, you know, watch, watching the, the tournament, uh, this year, I mean, you, you can't say, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, whatever, um, you know, like you said, a 16 seed going up against a number one seed and go yeah. in and say, uh, yeah, I think we're probably going to get beat really bad. <laughs> but we just want to be competitive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so, well, you know, one thing that I think an interesting point is, well, assuming that Sanders knows this and we can we can assume that he's a bright guy. So the question is, is if he if his goal at this point now is to actually see that his policies come to fruition or do whatever he can to make that most likely, what should he be doing with his time and money? And I've seen some commentary suggesting, well, instead of spending all this money and time on TV ads and so forth, maybe what he should start doing is taking these millions of dollars that he's got, and he's raking in money, mostly from small donors. He should start to try to look to the future and try to build some infrastructure for, you know, more of a kind of a future-oriented campaign, not for him, but for this kind of more liberal democratic vision, and also maybe to give money to down-ticket candidates who could really use it and who hadn't stand some chance of winning. And, you know, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made for that, though I think also it's pretty hard to just sort of admit that defeat and also kind of shift your money from that. His consultants are certainly going to be saying, no, Bernie, don't do that at all, because political consultants, as, as you know, we've talked about before, get paid based on how much money you spend on your campaign. So they're certainly not going to tell him to do that. Well, I would I would have hoped that Bernie Bernie Sanders political consultants would be 
less uh, greedy and capitalistic and uh, more oh, willing I, to share money around with, with everyone else. But apparently those, even those illusions have been shattered. Oh, yeah. I think all consultants are the same. Yeah, um, they're certainly the, the, the used car salesmen of the political world. I, I wouldn't trust any of them. But, but you know, and it, it, I think, though, it's a reasonable point. If Bernie Sanders is really serious about making some of these things happen, then I think he should be shifting his strategy a little bit, you know, to – you put to put his money where it can be uh, as useful as possible. I don't see that happening, though. I, I think it would be a good thing to happen if he cares more. No, about- I, it, here, no, I think I think he'll do that, but it has to be after the convention. No, oh, maybe you're right because he'll still have you know he because, sell some because money, he, sure. he increases his stock. He he wants his stock to to reach as as high a, a, a level as it can before the convention, mm-hmm. uh, and then at the convention he will make a a uh, you know gracious speech. Uh, saying, listen, I fell short, I ran the good race, but uh, Hillary Clinton's going to be a great nominee, and I'm happy to go out and work for our various senatorial candidates. Um, and and he'll, he'll come across as, uh, uh, again, this sort of elder statesman, grandfatherly kind of, kind of figure, and uh, I expect he would be able to go and start pulling in. His, his, his uh, power isn't so much he's got some cash to give, because you can always get more cash, um, what he would bring to down ticket races would be the enthusiasm of young voters. If, if that, that can translate over, yeah, that might be diff- sometimes it's difficult to do, but I see your point. Yeah, if he can, if he can do that, certainly I think you're right. And, and I guess just having him appear at uh, campaign events and so forth would, would, would be helpful with some of those voters. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. a good point. And after, yeah. after the convention, he'll have plenty of time to do that. And I good suspect point. that he yeah. will. Yeah. Good point. All right. Um, uh, well, then, before we get on to our non-campaign-related news, I wanted to uh, recognize two of our new podcast supporters. Uh, we have Tarek from Broomfield, Colorado, who, uh, along with his uh, pledge of support, said, you guys deserve two cups of coffee. And uh, Wow. Yeah, you know, so uh, – and then there Fantastic. was – Fantastic. Thank uh, you. Yes. Thanks, Tarek. And also Jeremy, a very generous guy from New York City. So thanks a lot, fellas. We're definitely grateful for your support. And – if you're a fan of the show, like Tarek and Jeremy obviously are, we'd certainly love your support too. Uh, this is an NPR. I'm sure everyone's noticed that by now. But we do have bills to pay and every little bit helps. So if you're interested, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either our PayPal or Patreon donation links we've got up there. Uh, Jay, Jay, we know we know what a great audience we have, right? So they're great people. And we really do uh, and sincerely appreciate everything you've been doing along the way to help keep the podcast going. So thanks very much. Okay. Yes. Thank you. On to our non, well, it's not exactly non-election related news, but I'll say it's not directly election related news. On Wednesday, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill the Supreme Court seat that's been vacant since Justice Scalia's death just over a month ago. Now, the 63-year-old Garland is currently chief judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and he's got a reputation as a well-respected moderate, though certainly to the liberal side. He'd be considerably more liberal than Justice Scalia. So, Jay, what would you say the odds are that Judge Garland becomes Supreme Court Justice Garland? Um, not as bad as you might think. Okay, how how so? And let me let me tell you why. Here's here's the you know first of all I I think we uh, in terms of of Merrick Garland number one that is a fantastic Supreme Court name. It right? is. It's pretty good. There's, there's, there's no there's no beating that. Um, 
Uh, but in terms of uh, judicial philosophy, you know, everything I've read, yeah, suggests that he is not a, a fire-breathing uh, lefty, um, although it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, in, in appeals court decisions, uh, so often you're one of, of uh, three panelists or one of an en banc panel. Um, and, and issues are different. You know, some folks have said, well, he's, he's very pro-law enforcement, uh, or at least more pro-law enforcement than um, uh, liberals might like. Uh, he has uh, supported the idea that uh, foreign combatants um, uh, at, at Gitmo uh, are, are not entitled to our constitutional rights. Um, he's uh, supported um, uh, some, again, he was, he was a prosecutor in the Oklahoma City case. Um, but, you know, so often, you know, and there was, I saw a stat from like the New York Times or somewhere saying that he's ruled against the criminal defendant like nine out of ten times. Um, but that's not terribly surprising because that's, that's sort of how those cases always go. Uh, and when you get to appeal, there's, there's usually a number of issues and a lot of them are things that were left to the discretion of the trial court. And the appeals court is left with the question of did the trial court abuse its discretion? And the answer to the que that question is nine out of 10 times. You, it's no, it's no. Um, uh, the other folks on the right have made a big deal about his, uh, he had requested an en banc hearing on a gun case uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that the, the en banc was, was denied and eventually it was um, – Essentially, the Heller case uh, superseded uh, what that case would have would have changed. Um, but I don't know, and, I, and we can have a conversation in a second as far as Second Amendment jurisprudence and how how big a deal it is and how much of of it there is. Um, you know, so again, that to me that doesn't strike me as as being. See, I, I don't think I don't even think we need to have those philosophy judicial philosophy conversations because I don't think it matters because I think the GOP intransigence is going to continue on this. Mitch McConnell is very firm in this. Uh, it seems like the most of the Republicans are are firm on this, and so he's not even going to get a hearing. I, I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that even if Hillary Clinton wins in November, I still don't think that the Republican Senate in a lame duck session, and lame duck session we mean that, that time between the end of the elections and the time the new Senate sits and the new president sits in January, I still don't think they would take up that nomination, even though they would know for a certainty that Hillary Clinton would nominate someone more liberal, and I'm guessing that if it's Clinton versus Trump, that the Democrats might actually have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate and that person would be con confirmed, I still don't think Republicans would cave on this. And, I, and that sound, maybe that sounds weird. Maybe that sounds nonsensical. But here's why. It I, does. Well, let, let me tell you why. I, I, you <laughs> know, I had a hard time. I've had a hard time understanding why Republicans would do this since it seems like it's so out of line with what they want. And what they want, here's the problem. I was assuming what they were mainly concerned about was a liberal on the Supreme Court and changing that balance. And what I realized, or what I think I've realized, is that that's not actually their main concern. They care about that, but they care a lot more about getting reelected. 
They care a lot more about not having some primary challenger from the right saying, oh, my God, they voted to have hearings or they allowed hearings on this liberal person. So they would rather stand firm and say, I voted no all the way down the line and have the Supreme Court tilt to decidedly to the left because their political futures are more important than any sort of actual, you know, policy. So that's what I think is going on. And that's why I think that uh, Merrick Garland is never going to be a Supreme Court justice, no matter what happens, because there are just too many Republican senators who are putting their reelection prospects above what's actually good for the party, at least as far as they're concerned. Well, although if you take a look, there are a number of Republican senators who are starting to break racks already. A few, yeah. yeah. And, and saying that, that and these are especially uh, senators who are up for reelection because – as I think you pointed out not long ago, the polls so far have indicated that people would be in favor of hearings, mm-hmm. which which seems to be a sensible sort of thing. That would be sort of, I think, most people's default position. When you don't want to have hearings, sure. Um, but uh, so I, I think what would happen is that uh, there will be some discussion. There will be some talk. There might even be some hearings. And I, and I think I predicted that a while back. Uh, but – we're going to wait till after the election yeah. because I think if, if Hillary wins the election, uh, Republicans will want to cut their losses and get Merrick, uh, uh, Merrick Garland on the court as opposed to um, uh, someone else. You know, and I, so, I, I hope you're right. I actually hope you're right because I think, I, I think that President Obama's choice was a reasonable choice. Uh, I, I think that uh, someone that Hillary Clinton would nominate, especially with the filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, would would not be as reasonable and someone I would be a little less comfortable with, someone who's a little more of a judicial activist. Of course, I should point out that what President Obama could always do if uh, the Democrats win, Hillary Clinton wins, and the Democrats get a you know a filibuster-proof majority, he could always withdraw Garland's nomination. Yeah, but I don't think that would happen. I don't know. He's been doing a that lot would, of that. Would be sort we'll of a, that would really be sort of a, a a crummy thing to do to Garland, and it would essentially concede the GOP argument that. And, and let me. Well, then he could the he could withdraw it and just say, you know what? I think you're right, Republicans. The people should have a voice in this. I've seen the light. My position <laughs> on this has evolved. You're absolutely right. You know? My position has evolved over the just since giving him the big uh, middle October finger, thirty first to uh, November seventh or something. You know, one other thing. Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean the, the Republican position. I think there's there's something to be said for this. It's not about Merrick Garland uh, himself. It's about, and this is this is going to sound weird. But should the balance of the Supreme Court be changed by what is essentially happenstance? Uh, for example, if, if – Well, just, that's how it happens. I mean, geez, that's the Constitution. What are you going to no, do? No, 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 no. It, it's it, – the fact that if, if Scalia had died uh, nine months later, it might be a very different, different situation. Well, people – But for the timing of his death, uh, would – should the – you know – ideological balance of the Supreme Court uh, be significantly changed? And I think that's that's a oh, reasonable question. Now, right. look. It, it, it's, it's a segment of Article 2, Section 2 that I must not be seeing that says, oh, but if, you know, just by happenstance someone dies, then actually the the role of the Senate for advising consent, they can just, we can just throw that out. I mean, you know, this well, is what this advising. is. They are advising and consenting. They're advising we should wait. They're not they're, that that, entire, that is a tortured interpretation of the constitution. Like, if if advise and consent doesn't mean 
you know, if, if you're not allowed to give the advice of, I think we should hold on and see how the election turns out, then the advising consent really is meaningless. That is, I think that is essentially an interpretation of the Constitution that I would expect not from textualist sort of original intent type of people that Republicans claim that they are. I mean, it says pretty clearly, the president, he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint blah, 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 Supreme Court justices. So, I mean, pretty clearly, the president has a duty to advise, and it's just the plain reading of that suggests that the Senate at least should, you know, advise him on this nomination, which doesn't mean going, la, 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 Don't la, la, do I it. can't. That's yeah, the advice. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a BS type of interpretation. Yeah, that's totally bogus. Anyway. Anyway, the, so. the idea that that our judicial system can swing one way or the other, the, the founders linked it to how people voted uh, and the idea that it can can swing significantly uh, based on the happenstance of one person's dying oh. um, at one point in time rather than another. I think that strikes people as being a little too random. Oh, ugh. oh and, and let's let's wait. Let's wait for the the election. And I think they do. And if Hillary wins, I think Merrick Garland is on is uh, confirmed. So, 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 where's the cutoff for this? Is it like if the person dies, oh, eight months or twelve months or fourteen months, or at what point can the president not appoint folks because, well, someone just happened to die? I mean, it just it, it anyway, anyway. I think it's pretty clearly in February of the president's last term. <laughs> sort of okay. Well, on that on that note, on that note of you being completely and utterly wrong, that's always a good note to close on, I think. So we we are running a little bit long, but uh, anyway, we, we clearly differ on this one. So that is it for this week's episode, all the time we have for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys show, which comes out every Wednesday, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week, and where you can join in, is facebook.com slash page. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And finally, if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two, the price of, oh, a dozen Dixon Ticonderoga pencils during a back-to-school sale would really help. You'll find the donation links on our site, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.